Hi, my name is Kat. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 1, 27, 2, 21 through 25. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. So the Lord God put the human into a deep and heavy sleep and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh over it. With the rib taken from the human, the Lord God fashioned a woman and brought her to the human being. The human said, this one finally is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. She will be called a woman because from a man she was taken. This is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife and they become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maggie, and the New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. Don't get drunk on wine, which produces depravity. Instead, be filled with the Spirit in the following ways. Speak to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music to the Lord in your hearts. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submit to each other out of respect for Christ. The word of the Lord. Thank you for standing. Hi, my name is Nicole. Uh, the scripture reading is in the gospel uh, found in Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. The gospel of the Lord. Amen. Let's remain standing as we pray this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace that abounds to us. We thank you that you are present in this place by your Holy Spirit to bring your truth and your comfort, your conviction to all of us today. Now we pray as we listen to your words that we would be able to hear the word of God speaking to us. And that as we listen, our eyes would be open to see Jesus. That our hearts would be stirred to follow and love Jesus. We pray these things in his name. And everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. How's it going? It is great to see all of you on this midsummer day. My name is Glenn Packiam. I get to serve as the pastor here at New Life Downtown. Uh, for those of you that are new or newish, or maybe this is your first summer with us, uh, we're sorry about the heat in here. Uh, people who know, we know, and I just want you to know that New Life Downtown, if you want to come in like athletic gear or shorts and put up with the heat, bring your own spritzer bottles or those Disneyland circle fan misters, whatever, like you can do it all here. Uh, we love that we get to meet in the oldest high school in Colorado Springs. I mean, we really do love it, except in late July. So, uh, so we're doing we're doing our best. There will be baptism in the 11 a.m. service. The water is a little cooler than normal, I think. So, if you want to get rebaptized, even you can do that. Just stick around for that. So. We're in the middle of a series called Whole Life. Now, normally, 
uh, what is our practice to do around here is in the spring, we'll go through a book, uh, an Old Testament book, and so we went through a series of stories from 1 Samuel this year, and then in the fall, we typically go through a New Testament book, we're going to go through Philippians uh, beginning in late August and go for about 10 weeks, but the summer is a great time for us to kind of break down a few topics and maybe address some of the questions that we've been wrestling with, and so we've called this series Whole Life. As a way of saying, when we talk about the different pieces of our life, it may be helpful for us in terms of our minds to be able to break these as separate topics. But really, the way that we actually live is as if all of these things are integrated and affect one another. So our subtitle of the whole series has been a series on integrated spirituality. And what we believe here at New Life is that our life with God really shows up into our life at work, and it shows up in our life with others, and it shows up in our life at play, and our life at rest, and all of those pieces. We don't want a segmented spirituality where we say, well, I'm doing spiritual things when I read the Bible and pray, and then I'm doing sort of necessary but carnal things when I go to work or whatever. So we want to be able to say, look, no, Lord, we offer to you our whole lives. Amen? So the last, the first two weeks of the series, we did talk about uh, practices that help us remain connected to God, the source of our life, and talk about prayer and scripture. And then the two weeks after that, we talked about life at work. Why do we work? Is this just sort of a necessary evil, or what are we trying to do here? And last week, Pastor Jason explained to us what good work might look like. Well, beginning today, over the next three Sundays, we're going to talk about life with others. And if you have have walked with God for even a few minutes or hours, you recognize that often it's not the you and Jesus part that is difficult, it's the you and others part. And the amen, thank you, sister. And if we were honest about this, followers of Jesus would be a whole lot more pleasant to be around if they were more like us. And so we're going to take three weeks to kind of walk through this. So today we're going to talk about marriage. Next week, we're going to talk about singleness, and the week after that, we're going to talk about friendships. And all of these kinds of uh, positions in life, stations in life, relationships in life matter. Now, before we start uh, today on marriage, and by the way, I've got the voice in my head from Princess Bride because I just watched it with my son this week, and so if I just slip and say marriage, now you know uh, where that came from. But I wanted to show you a picture of Holly and I's Our Wedding Day almost 18 years ago, just kids. This is outside the uh, chapel, Chauve Chapel at Colorado College. So this was August 17th, 2001, so next month will be 18 years. We met in college at Oral Roberts University. I was 19, oh, oh yeah, that's great, 18 years, yes. Hallelujah, hooray, yes. When we met, I was 19, she was 18. When we got married, I was 23, she was 22. And this, you know, if you look close, this is sort of like the real-life face app thing, the aging effect. So let's move on from there. Okay. <laughs> Why talk about marriage? And today we're calling this sermon Marriage, Sex, and Power. I mean, why talk about this? Well, one of the reasons to talk about this is because all of us, single or married, all of us need to have a proper kind of theology of marriage. Now, one of the reasons we're not talking about this, we're not doing this subject today because we think that marriage is the pinnacle that everyone should aspire to. 
oftentimes in church, we orient church life to almost sort of send the message that marriage is the logical sort of next step in your life of maturity. And if you're not married, well, bless your heart. Who can I introduce you to, you know? We're not going to do that. I, I, I saw a post from a, 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 a pastor recently who was bragging about how attractive his wife was, which I hate those posts. And then he said, listen, single people, if you'll just follow God, he'll hook you up. And I threw up a little bit in my mouth. Because A, don't objectify your spouse, and B, don't turn marriage into some sort of prize that God hands out for good behavior. We're just getting going. All right, and, and here's, so we're not talking about marriage because we think, okay, everybody needs to, to do this. No, but I do think we should talk about it because one of the things we discover, even in our culture at large, is marriage seems to be a remarkably durable institution. Even people who claim no faith and have no respect for religion or no regard for religion still decide that when they really, really, really love someone, they'll move beyond living together into marriage. Why is that? Why is it in the back of our subconscious that this is somehow an important step? So we should talk about that. The other reason why I think we should talk about it is because actually Christians have not been very helpful on this subject. And Christians have said some very unhelpful things about marriage and power dynamics between husbands and wives. We're going to get there this morning. Christians have said some very unhelpful things about sex in marriage. I, I, I've been in ministry for, uh, local church ministry for 19 years now and have had the privilege of doing premarital counseling with many couples, doing many weddings, following up with couples after the fact, and discovered that there's a lot of Christian teaching out there that presents a particular view of marriage or of sex that is actually not helpful and in many cases can be very damaging. And so I want us to unravel that a little bit. But the other reason, another reason, yet another reason to talk about it is there's quite a bit of confusion in our culture. So despite marriage being an incredibly durable institution, there's also a lot of confusion about why it matters. And so in our context today, what you hear is you hear people say, well, love is love. And as long as two people love each other, then marriage should not be uh, ruled out or taken off the table. As long as love is love, then marriage should be an option. And for the Christian, we're going to ask ourselves today, is that what marriage is about? Is marriage simply the highest expression of human love? Is it? Or is there something more to it? Now, normally, again, if you're new here, you may not quite be aware of this. Normally, when we have sermons here, they're a little more, you know, preachy. Today is going to feel a little more like a teaching. So you'll want to take notes, even if you're not habitually a note taker or normally a note taker. Today would be a good one. There's going to be lots to write down. And if you're married and sitting next to your spouse, resist the urge to elbow or shoot sideways glances. So just, just, just eyes on me, baby. Okay, here we go. We're going to say three things about marriage. <laughs> Number one, marriage is a sign. Marriage is a sign. And I'm, uh, next week, Pastor Jason's going to preach on singleness. And singleness is also a sign. Singleness also has this sort of sacred function in the way it points to the, the, the world to come and the resurrection. But marriage is a unique kind of sign in a, of itself. What do I mean by this? Genesis 1, the scriptures begin with a list of paired opposites in creation. 
When you read the poem, and Genesis 1 reads like a Hebrew poem with meter and cadence, you see that there's paired opposites. There's light and darkness, the waters and the land, the sun and the moon, the sea creatures and the sky creatures. And then you arrive at Genesis 1:27, And it says, And God created humanity in God's own image, in the divine image. God created them male and female. God created them. Coming at the end of this poem as it does. It's a way of saying, look at all these paired opposites, and now male and female are a maybe the crowning pair of opposites. But then the Genesis story, and we won't take time to walk through this, but what you're basically seeing from Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 11 is what sin does to the world that God ordered. Sin basically disorders God's world. So in Genesis 3, you see humans and God the humans are hiding from God, so the God-human relationship is fractured. Then you see the male-female relationship fractured because they start blaming one another. Then you see Cain and Abel, the relationship among brothers is uh, um, being destroyed by rivalry and jealousy and murder. And then it goes on, and when the flood happens, the ground is rebelling against the, hu uh, the human race. And so the earth itself is not cooperating. By the time you get to Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, now you're seeing the fragmentation of human societies. If you were to put a headline over Genesis 3 through 11, you would say, what God joined together, sin tore asunder. What God joined together, sin tore asunder. And so if that's the case, then salvation is the reverse of that. Ephesians 1.10. I love the way Paul says this. It's kind of his topic sentence for the letter. He says, this is what God planned for the climax of all times to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things on earth. That is the thesis statement of the whole letter of Ephesians. That means before we get to Ephesians 5 and talk about husbands and wives, we need to understand that God plans to bring all things back together in Jesus Christ. And the rest of Ephesians is Paul showing how. He says in Ephesians 2, look, once you were far away, we sang it this morning. Those lyrics come right out of Ephesians 2. The God-human relationship is repaired. Then he, if he, the rest of Ephesians 2, the Jew-Gentile relationship is repaired. That is, again, like the relationship between brothers. You see how it's the undoing of Genesis 3 through 11? Then he gets to Genesis 5 and starts talking about male and female and marriage. And you're like, oh, now I see what you're up to. If the headline over Genesis 3 through 11 was what God joined together, sin tore asunder, then the headline in Ephesians is what sin tore asunder, God joined together. Thanks be to God. That is the power of the gospel. And this is why Paul can say in Ephesians 5.32, marriage is a significant allegory, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Throughout the scriptures, marriage is actually used as a really significant metaphor. When God wants to describe or illustrate his covenant relationship with his people, Israel, guess what he chooses? He chooses parenting. There's parenting metaphors. There's shepherding metaphors. But one of the most poignant ones he chooses is marriage. Marriage is this illustration of the covenant between Yahweh and Israel. You see the prophets like Ezekiel. If, you've ever get, if you ever think the Bible is boring, just sit down one day and just start reading through Ezekiel. I mean, it's bizarre. It's like the matrix. And there's all kinds of imagery in there about God making a covenant 
with Israel like a bride. And then, of course, Paul, Christ in the church. But by the time you get to Revelation, now we're talking about heaven, God's space, and earth, human space, being joined together. Listen to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. How does a city look like a bride? (laughs) The New Jerusalem coming down, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. And Revelation goes on and teases out this image of a marriage supper, of a big marriage party. It's almost as if in in Revelation 21, God says, look, I'm committed to you. I'm so committed to you that I'm going to keep your part of the covenant for you. And in the end, we're going to actually have the strength of our covenant. And then since we're married, let's move in together since we're already married. And so heaven and earth comes joining together, rushing together as one. So when we say that marriage is a sign, it is the design of creation and the sign of salvation. Now, if I had thought of that phrase last night, it would be on the screen, okay? But it's the design of creation and the sign of salvation. That's how marriage functions. So when we talk about it having this larger than just two human beings kind of story, that's what we mean. So for the Christian, of course, there's human love involved. Of course, this is about two human beings pledging and promising their lives. Of course, it's about that. But it's about much something much larger than that. It's a sign. And because it's a sign of that, it has to be congruent. Signs have to be congruent with the things they are signifying. Signs have to be congruent with the things they are pointing to. And so... When we talk about the marriage of heaven and earth, the union of the pairing of two opposites, this is why our theology of marriage begins there, that marriage is a sign. It also is why I think marriages come under attack from the evil one. It's also why I think marriages face a kind of spiritual warfare. Because if you were the devil and you knew there were hints and clues in the world that pointed to God's saving, unifying, redeeming, renewing all things kind of love, wouldn't you want to go and deface those signs? Like if you knew some secret ski place or whatever and you didn't want anyone else to find it, you might want to tear down those signs. You're like, I don't want anyone to find it. That's like the devil. He doesn't want to know that God's work in the world is about taking things that sin tore asunder and joining them back together. And so every opposition we feel in a marriage is not just because marriage is hard work, and it is hard work. The the theologian Stanley Hauerwas famously said, everybody marries the wrong person. (laughs) And what he meant by that is if you ever have had the moment, and this is a great time to keep your eyes on me, if you've ever had the moment, (laughs) I'm your friend today, okay? If you've ever had a moment where you're like, I don't like this about my spouse. If I had, maybe if I'd married someone different, it wouldn't be like this. Everybody has that moment at some point. Marriage is hard work, but it's also hard because it's being opposed by the evil one. Let's not kid ourselves about this. If it is an incredible sign to God's redeeming salvation, then of course there's a devil who says, let's deface and destroy as many of these signs as we can. 
right? So we understand why for, for all of us who are married in the room, it's important to, to treat your marriage as your number one ministry. How many, many of you grew up, maybe some of you in the missions movement or in other parachurch ministries, where you kind of thought marriage is the thing that I just need to be okay so I can do the kingdom work. And so you kind of tell your spouse, honey, just be all right so I can do God's work. Can I say to you, for those of you that are married, your marriage is God's work. Tending to your marriage is your ministry. It is your witness in the world. A strong marriage equals a clear sign of what God's salvation is like in the world. Amen? All right. Secondly, sex is sacred. You all just looked up at me. That's great. If I wasn't chocolate, you'd see me blushing. Just wait for it. There you go. There you go. Sex is sacred. Now here again, this is something that is unique to what Christians want to say about sex. We, we know all the other things that are true about sex, that it's great and can be powerful and connects people, all of that. We, we know all that. But what is it that Christians have to say about sex that maybe is a unique perspective on? Well, what Christians would say is, look, if marriage is a sign of the union of heaven and earth, then sex is the embodiment of that union. It's the enfleshment of that oneness. In fact, uh, Pete Scazzaro, Pete and Jerry Scazzaro, who created the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Emotionally Healthy Relationships, and all that series, uh, they make a big deal about pointing out that sex is the thing that sets apart marital intimacy from all other kinds of intimacy. And there can be emotional, physical, all that. There can be intimacy, and we should learn to be good at relationships. We're going to talk about that in the weeks ahead. But sex is one of those things that sets a marriage kind of intimacy apart from other kinds of intimacy. But it's also the place, if we're honest, where there's been a lot of unhelpful things that have been said, particularly by Christian people. And so I want to start by diving into the most controversial text in the New Testament about this. The one that has been misused, misapplied, used to beat up people, particularly women. And wives, I'm talking to you today in the hopes of elevating your place. In the hopes of dignifying your place. Because very often when you hear a man in a pulpit talking about sex in a marriage, usually the message is, you better just say yes. And so I want to let you exhale even before we get into this to say we're going to look at this text and we're going to say, see how we've maybe missed some parts of this. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Paul, now about what you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sex with a woman. Actually, the Greek of this phrase is Paul saying, now about what you wrote, it is good not to touch a woman. And the reason Paul does this, in fact, multiple times in 1 Corinthians, Paul is quoting back to them sayings that they have, kind of mantras or little tweetable slogans, if you will. Like this was kind of their, their, their catchwords, catchphrases. And, and the literal phrase is, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And that's a euphemism. And there was some debate about what this means. And uh, some early scholars like F.F. F. Bruce and others said, oh, yeah, I think it means don't have sex with a woman. But as more study has been done into this phrase as it was used in the first century, what people realized is, no, this is a euphemism for don't have sex with a woman out of passion or pleasure. And you think, well, that's an interesting conclusion. Why would they have that saying? 
Okay? Let me give you some backdrop. Two views of sex in the ancient, in, in the Greco-Roman world. Two views of sex in the Greco-Roman world. First view was that sex is an appetite that must be fed. You see this show up in 1 Corinthians 6 when the Corinthians say, look, we got to eat. And actually, this, this kind of view is prevalent in our culture today, isn't it? Where people want to say, come on, it's just sex, no strings attached. You, you, any other appetite, any other desire, you're going to feed it, you're going to take care of yourself. So let's stop being prudish and old-fashioned about this. If you're going to have sex, you're gonna have, if you need this, you need this, just take care of yourself. It's fine, who cares, just be okay. That was one of the ancient Greco-Roman world attitudes. The second attitude was that sex, I should say marital sex, was for procreation, not pleasure or passion. So in the Roman world, you'll read some of these household instructions by Roman statesmen, and they kind of thought the, the woman is to sort of be this noble woman of virtue, and the woman that, that is sort of the, the, the matriarch who helps host great parties and all of this stuff, but you only have sex with her in order to continue your lineage. If you want to have sex for passion or for pleasure, go do that with someone else. That was the ancient... Greco-Roman practice. And so what happened was it was common practice for men who would have slaves or other people in their household to use, and this is a, a slightly graphic way of saying it, to use the, the, the women under their power for their own sexual pleasure. Now, we, it, it, we can say, we can be horrified by this a couple thousand years removed, but in Greco-Roman non-Christian thinking, it was like, well, yeah, I mean, that's what, that's what you got to do. There's temple prostitutes, there's people in your, there's slaves and all this stuff, just do that. And the only sort of caveat was it actually can't be a free woman, because if you have sex with a free woman for pleasure, now you've created a rival to your wife. But if it's a slave woman, then it doesn't matter. Now, the tragedy of this is, this is how women have been misused and abused throughout the centuries. And it's the gospel, even in Corinth, that begins to confront that. And so as these Corinthians got saved, they began to say, wait a minute, we can't do this. We shouldn't do that. But they kind of arrived at a bit of a muddled position. And so the Corinthians, what they decided was only have sex with your wife for procreation. Well, this is the Corinthians, secular Corinthians, have sex with prostitutes and slaves for their own pleasure and passion. But the Corinthian Christians then said, well, if we can't do this second half, then we should only have sex with our wives for children. But then once there's children, then maybe it's just good not to touch a woman. So the Corinthians have arrived at this very extreme position of saying, I guess to follow Jesus means to be celibate from now on. Now, that's important context because the next three verses of this chapter are the ones that have been used as um, Bible weapons against couples. And it's important for us to understand this is where they were. They were at this extreme place of saying, I guess following Jesus means you have to be celibate, even in a marriage. And Paul's saying, I, don't, I think you guys are missing something. And so then in verse 2, he says, each man should have his own wife, and that itself is a euphemism for closeness and intimacy, and each woman should have her own husband. Now, this is not revolutionary to us, but it would have been explosive in the ancient world where women were treated like a thing that a man had, Paul says, mm, we're going to make this mutual here. Not only does a husband have a wife, but a wife has a husband. The two of y'all are together. Because of the sexual immorality that's rampant, the husband should meet his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should do the same for her husband. Verse 4. Uh, yeah, next slide here. 
Do we have it? There we go. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. These are the verses that create problems. But before diving into them, I want to say this. What Paul is proposing, Paul is proposing a view. Paul proposes a view. If you got that slide. Paul proposes a view of sex that is for pleasure, passion, and procreation, and one that is marked by mutuality and dignity. That's the game changer. Not only that he says, yes, procreation, yes, pleasure, yes, passion, but also that he says, marked by mutuality and dignity. So I want to say three things under this point about, the, uh, uh, about sex. And I'll do my best. The first thing here is that sex is meant to be unifying to the marriage. It's meant to be unifying to the marriage. We, we know this um, from studies of the brain chemical oxytocin, how it produces this incredible bond, the bond, a feeling of well-being, all of that stuff. In fact, a secular sociologist, Randall Collins, says this. He says, sex can produce the strongest of all forms of solidarity and sexual intercourse is the ritual of love. It both creates and recreates the social tie and symbolizes it. Even from a human perspective, you'd say, wow, it really has the power to unify. It has the power to create and recreate a social tie. There's something powerful about its ability to unify. So uh, the, the, the great kind of marriage therapist, the Gottmans, who've spent decades studying other couples and all of this stuff, will talk about encouraging couples to have a six-second kiss. Because even in a six-second kiss, there is uh, the firing of that chemical of oxytocin, reminding you of your bond and your connection. There can be something incredibly powerful and unifying, but you don't need me to tell you more about that. Secondly, sex is meant to be dignifying to the other. This is where I want to take a moment and be your pastor for a bit. Sex is meant to be dignifying to the other. I think one of the keys to dignity is mutuality. Let me say that again. One of the keys to dignity is mutuality. The sense of which we are submitting to one another. There have been really damaging Christian teaching that has taken those verses in 1 Corinthians 7 that have said, look, you can never refuse one another, so he who has the stronger drive always wins. He who has the stronger desire always gets his way. And Christian wife, you should always, you should never refuse. I've even read... Uh, Christian quote-unquote marriage blogs that have said uh, to refuse is a rebellious is to be a rebellious wife and I want to say categorically and unmistakably clear today that is not what the Bible teaches that is not what the Bible teaches what first Corinthians 7 is teaching is a mutuality and dignity for one another in fact the most explosive line in first Corinthians 7 verse 2 through 4 is that the husband body does not belong to himself. What? To the pater familias, the Latin term for the head of the household, the master of the domain? What do you mean my body does not belong? Excuse me, everybody else's body belongs to me. And Paul says under Jesus, there's only one master in a household and his name is Jesus Christ and everybody else submits to him. And so there is this tremendous need to say actually in a, in a Christian marriage, both people are submitting their sex drives to one another. 
And you arrive at a place where you say, well, do we both agree? Here's it. And, and maybe you'll discover ways of, of meeting halfway and all of that stuff, but you'll have to work that out. But you don't work that out by exercising power dynamics or false senses of obligation. That's not what Paul is saying. Remember, he's talking to a people who didn't want to have any sex. <laughs> you guys, we take this in our sort of sex-crazed culture, and we're like, I need to have all the sex. That, that's not what Paul's saying. Sorry, that's about as many times as I've said sex in my sire's <laughs> life at the pulpit. Just got to break the tension a little bit. In a sense, Paul's instructions would have been read as restrictive on a man, and appropriately so. So when he says your bodies belong to the other, that is a trust, not a duty. When he says your bodies belong to other, that is a trust, not a duty. Do you know how vulnerable it is to place your body in someone else's hand? And some of you, this is, it's too vulnerable because of painful situations. I, I understand that. But the idea is be tender with one another. Be gentle with one another. Be patient with one another. Recent surveys have said the number one reason why married couples, Christian or not, are, don't have sex very often is because of busyness and tiredness. Listen, some of you, many of you have young kids in the homes. Be patient with one another. I mean, you, you, you might have waited a while and you might think this is your night and just when it's about to, you know, dim the lights or whatever, there's a kid that pukes in their bed. Or someone comes knocking on the door because they had a terrible nightmare. I have no personal experience with this. Be patient with one another. It has to dignify the other. And so I want to talk briefly about something here without creating shame for any of you in the room. We live in an age where the accessibility to porn and pornographic images and scenes is at an all-time high. It used to be you'd have to work hard to try to find something, see something. Now it's on your cell phone. You could be scrolling your Instagram feed and see something that sparks a thought, and you go chase that thought, and then you follow, and you go, oh man, what did I just do? And in some Christian marriage counseling, what they've told couples is, oh, everything's fine as long as it's within a marriage. But that's not actually true. In a, in a Christian marriage, sex has to be enacted in a way that actually dignifies the other. That means you can't treat your spouse like a porn star. You can't find some fantasy or thing and say, well, let's, let's do that. Because now what's informing your image of unity and intimacy is not the glorifying salvation of the union of heaven and earth and all that. Now what's informing it is some salacious clip you saw online. And we, whether you're reading it in a book, whether you're watching it on Netflix, we do not want our imaginations shaped by the world's idea of good sex. And if you're caught in that trap, friends, there is hope. This doesn't have to be the end of your story. The, the, the odds are many of you find yourself in a pattern where you're looking at something, sneaking a peek, and you're, I, I don't know, I just sort of, it's a rated R movie, but I really wanted to see that one scene. Or it's this new show on HBO about thrones. And I'm really into it for the medieval-ish stuff, but actually there's a whole lot of porn going on. 
And I just want to challenge you. I'm not here to be your Sunday school teacher. I'm not here to police what you do. But I want to implore you as your pastor, what you take in by your reading and by your seeing will shape your imagination about sex. And it will be very hard to have a dignifying to the other person kind of sex when you're taking in objectifying visions of sex. All right. Got it? Yes. Thank you for letting me say that. The third thing I want to say about sex is that it has, it's meant to be glorifying to God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, Paul says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, and yet God will do away with both. What's he talking about? He's talking about our appetites. He says, you want to reduce sex to just an appetite? Well, listen, God's over all of them. God's going to destroy all of them. The body isn't for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. This is Paul, before he even gets to 1 Corinthians 7, before he even says that your body does not belong to yourself, guess who Paul says your body belongs to first and foremost? God! Now that's a frightening thought. Your eyes belong to God. This isn't about being little Puritan prudes, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. No, this is about saying, these eyes were made, they belong to God. These are God's eyes. These are God's lips. These are God's ears. These are God's heart. This is God's heart. This is God's mind. This is God. This, everything that I am belongs to God. And so when I said that number two, sex is sacred, what we're trying to say here is, Put it under the category of holy things, not under the category of like, well, I just will do whatever the heck I want to do, and then I'll just, just, you know, love God. He doesn't really, you know, as long as we're married, we're okay. Listen, so much of the stuff that, that tilts into abuse and objectification in a marriage happens in quote-unquote good Christian marriages because nobody has said, do you know that it's not enough just to be married? In order to have your sex also has to be dignifying to the other and glorifying to God. All right. All right, church. We move on to the third point. Power is shared. Power is shared. Marriage is a sign. Sex is sacred. Power is shared. It's easy to miss that before Paul talks about wives submitting to husbands in verse 21, he says, and submit to each other out of respect for Christ. Someone say, each other. Each other. I am really not interested in how you structure your household. There may be ways that you structure it. And some people say to me, we've just decided that she'll take care of all of these decisions. I'll take care of these decisions. Or it may be like the joke that that couple who made it to their 50th wedding anniversary and the young couple said, how'd you do it? 50 years. It's amazing. And the, the husband goes, oh, it's simple. We decided when we got married that I'd take care of all the major decisions and she would take care of all the minor decisions. And the miracle is in 50 years, there's never been a major decision. Wait for it. I, I do want you to know that in Ephesians 5, what Paul takes is an existing Roman household structure. So you may disagree about interpretations of the scripture and all that, but you should at least know that Paul is not writing these household instructions in Ephesians 5 out of like some sort of meditation vision where he's like, okay, yes, Lord, husbands and wives. He's riffing off of cultural norms. They were existing Roman household codes that, that the, the Ephesian Christians would have known. And Paul's like, 
I know, I know, you set up the home for the man to be the head and all this stuff. He's like, let me just tell you that when you're filled with the Spirit, power differentials get relativized. Power differentials get relativized. And so he says, yes, children should obey their parents, but also, dads, don't aggravate or exasperate your kids. And yes, servants should obey their masters. And there's a whole other discussion on why Paul could not undo the institution of slavery, though later Christians would use Paul's words to undo it. But he does say, just remember, masters, that you have one master and his name is Jesus, and you're going to have to give an account to him too. What's he doing? Power differentials in the first century were like this, and he's going, it's like this. So I am less interested in the structure of your household, and I'm more interested in the spirit of your household. The structure of each household may vary, but the spirit of the household needs to be the same, the spirit of unity and mutuality. Holly and I have gone through different iterations of this early in our marriage. We thought, okay, maybe it just needs to be this way, and and headship means decision-making power. By the way, if you read Ephesians 5, nowhere, exactly nowhere, is headship related to decision-making. Nowhere. In fact, headship, when it corresponds to Jesus, goes in with sacrifice and death. So if you're the person that wants to like say, well, I'm the head, you get to be the first to die then. (laughs) You get to be the first to give up your way. So don't talk to me about headship if all you're going to do is use headship language to assert your will. That's not in Ephesians 5. Okay, now. Come on, somebody. I told you, women, I'm here to be your friend this morning. (laughs) Holly and I have learned that we're less interested in labels and names for our marriage, complementarian, egalitarian. I'm just not interested in that anymore. I don't want tribal fights between camps. I just know we want to walk in a spirit of unity and mutuality. And, and so that just means we're going to talk through stuff, we're going to work through stuff, we want to make sure we're seeing each other. What happens when we make it about power and decision making is you actually miss the unity. This applies in all relationships, but when there's power differentials in a relationship, if you just say, well, let's just make, get the decision made, maybe what you've missed in the moment is the chance to see what was really in the heart of the other person behind their request or behind their position. Instead, we turn it into a fight. So it's like, well, this is my position. Well, this is my position. And it's like, I'm, you know what happens when two people are standing against each other? You can't see what they see. And I can't tell you how many times in our marriage, Holly and I have been on opposite ends of a, a decision and we're like, oh, I, 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 we need to do that. And she's like, we need to do that. And we're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then all of a sudden we stand side by side and say, tell me what you're seeing. And she's like, I'm seeing that. Wow, that, yeah, that's pretty good. Tell me what you're seeing. I'm seeing that. Huh, it's amazing. I wonder if there's a way, and then we stand right here, that we can see both of these things. Do you see what I'm saying? This is the goal. But if you make power the struggle in a marriage, and every marriage has power struggles. Every marriage has power struggles. If you make it about who's got more power, you miss the chance to have intimacy and unity. Don't make it about who wins and who loses. Make it about connection. What are you seeing? Can I show you what I'm seeing? How can we walk in a way that we both get to achieve something here, walk towards something here? 
Now listen, as we come to a close here and the worship team comes, it's easy to hear all this and to say, oh my goodness, this just sounds impossible. You're right. <laughs> it is impossible. And every marriage, mine included, fails at all of the things that I've just said. We have failed to be a sign of God's salvation. Which marriage can live up to that? We have failed to let our sexuality be sacred and holy. I've I've failed in that. We have failed in sharing power. We've used power against We've all failed in this. The message today is not to say, well, go and try harder. Ephesians 5, before Paul ever starts talking about relationships, he talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And friends, it it is only the Holy Spirit who makes this possible. It's only the Holy Spirit who makes this possible. It's the Holy Spirit who renews his work in us. That means if you got some scars and some calluses and your heart is beginning to harden towards another person, or maybe you're single and your heart is hardened about the idea of a relationship, and you're like, I don't even want to think about that. Could it be that the Holy Spirit will be the one that makes you soft again? Could it be that the Holy Spirit will be the one that tenderizes you? It's only the Holy Spirit who makes it possible. It's only the Holy Spirit who makes it possible. Ephesians 5, Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, which produces depravity. Instead, be filled with the Spirit in the following ways. And he goes on and makes this whole list. You know what happens if you're not filled up with the Holy Spirit individually? You keep going to the other person to give you what you need. You keep going to the other person and say, I'm so thirsty right now, I just need to... And the other person's like, whoa, take it easy. (laughs) This is a bit much here, like, ah, I can't give you all the things you need. When two parched people are trying to get a drink from each other, it's a disaster. But when two people who are filled up with the Holy Spirit come together, it becomes easier, easier to submit to one another. Does that make sense, you guys? The best thing you can do for your life, single or married, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Is to welcome the Holy Spirit's work and to say, Holy Spirit, I know you're with me. I know you live in me, but I just want you to renew your work in me. I want you to renew your work. I want you to make my heart soft again. I want you to lead me to places of repentance. Some of you, that might be what the call is today, places of repentance. It's never too late to change. Others of you, it's places of forgiveness. Some of you might say after today, you know what, have we got to make it a priority to go find a counselor? Listen, we have great lists of counselors to refer you to today. Pastor Evan is here. Pastor Jason is here. My wife Holly is here, soon to be Pastor Holly. And, and, and we, we've got lists of counselors to recommend to you. We'd love to help you take the next step with this. Don't hear this and feel shame and then feel stuck. Hear this and say, all right, Holy Spirit, renew something in me today. Amen?